Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, Mark Kellen. Dave, good morning. How are you? All right. I think we use the expression good morning um, with some confidence this morning because I, I think it's worth remarking on the fact that I think we're doing this podcast and at an hour of the day literally nobody else in the wide world of podcasting will be podcasting. It's unlikely, what? isn't it? 7.34. In the on morning. Saturday morning. <laughs> and frankly, we would have started about an hour before if we got slightly more organised. Oh, I think we really. would. And we the rest could. of the world is still uh, blissfully in the arms of Lethe, in as indeed is our producer Alex, somewhere in Germany. So, uh, so we're getting away with it. Here we are. i got a stack Woody game which is sent to me Go on. Uh, by uh, Wilson Neat from San Francisco. Right. Thanks, thanks very much for this, Wilson. And it's, it's, it's lovely, uh, the background to this, because it's a standard erudition that we expect from Word in Your Ear listeners, you know. He says uh, he had an idea for a stackwaddy game while reading uh, an English-language translation of Dante's Inferno. Oh, this as, is good. As you do. Yes. He says, in the poem, uh, which I'm not terribly familiar with, but you may be, Mark, there are 12 clawed demons known collectively as the Malley branch, who make death even more unpleasant for those already unfortunate enough to be in hell. And rather than leave the names in the original Italian, the translator has given them English English names, which he says unwittingly, he assumes, he's fashioned names that sound like Nordic metal bands. <laughs> this is so in the deep end, isn't it? <laughs> Anybody who's stumbled across this podcast for the first time, they are already within two minutes at half past seven in the morning. They've got onto the English translation of Dante's Inferno's Claude Demons. <laughs> Claude <laughs> Demon, in fact, an album from him as well, probably. Yeah. Go on. Three, two more he from them. The yeah. two, more, two more from them in the second half. Yeah. Um, so here are six names, okay, uh, of Claude Demons, and one of them is a Nordic metal band. Okay, okay. I like it. Right. Well, well, you know, one of them is a real is a real band. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of them made up. Here we go. 
Spike Beard. Spike Beard. Isn't that good? Right. This is good. Bad Dog. One word. Bad Dog. Trample Frost. Trample Frost. What Again, one word. Pig Face. Pig Face. Scratch Bitch and Lust Honey. Those Spike Beard. Spike Beard, Bad Dog, Trample Frost, Pig Face, Scratch Bitch and Lust Honey. How many of those are real bands? Only one. Only one is a real band. It's um, Trample Frost. I'm no, absolutely it, sure. You're wrong. Because <laughs> Trample Frost is such a great name. No, so it's, not, so it's, it's, it's either it's Spike Beard, it's Bad Dog. Was it Pig Face? Scratch it's pig, Bitch? It's Pig Face. Pig Face. It, it's Pig Face. An industrial supergroup that's pre- featured pretty much everybody from Lydia Lunch to John Lydon. There you go. So, Lust uh, Honey, that's super, those are really good. Yes, yeah, so the rest of them are available if anybody wants to name a Nordic metal band. You know, they're there. Because they have Wilson Neats in San Francisco. So yeah, Wilson, that's much. great work. Trample Frost is just very a simply good. brilliant name. Very good um, stuff. I've got one for you, okay? We are family. All right, go on. These musicians, are they related to these people or not? It's just strange ways that families work out, okay? Fact or fiction? Susie Quattro is the aunt of Sherilyn Fenn, who played Audrey in Twin Peaks. <laughs> right? Um, do you want me to guess now? Yeah, no, I, guess, you can guess, guess them as we go along. Yeah. True. It is true. All right. Absolutely right. No, yeah, her mum is the, is the keyboard player, Arlene Quattro. Is it a member of, uh, of a group called the Pleasure Seekers? We're the sister Susie. Joe Walsh of the Eagles and Ringo Starr are brothers-in-law. True or they're false? They're certainly close mates, aren't they? He plays in his band. God. I'm going to have to say true, but I don't it's know true. why. It's yeah, true. Joe Walsh married Mar- Marjorie Bark right, there in you 2008. Go. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Ronnie Wood is Fern Cotton's father-in-law. <laughs> I know it's now, bizarre. Now, hang on. I Could that be true or not? I, I don't... I. That no, can't be true. It's not true. It is true. Is it really? No, it is I, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've met his Ronnie. oldest son Jesse is married to Fern Cotton, oh, married in two thousand and fourteen. Yes, of course you're right. Because yeah. I I actually met I've met on more than one occasion Ronnie Wood's son-in-law, but obviously that's you know the the other the other sibling and so forth. But anyway, go on, Gary. No, that's good. Okay, all right. Axel Rose was the son-in-law of Don Everly. That is true. That is absolutely right. Because he married, he married, is she called Fern Everly? She's called Erin Everly. Erin Everly. In fact, wrote Sweet Child of Mine about her. Married her, I think, in 1990, split up a few years later. Yeah, yeah. Craig Brown, the satirist, old pal of this podcast, is Florence Welsh of Florence and the Machine's uncle. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. I'm going to say that's true. It is true. Um, yeah, he's very. He talks about it quite a lot in in, uh, uh, in interviews because he's so thrilled to have a kind of what he thinks is a, is a, and he's right. It's a very fashionable pop connection. Pop star yeah, he's married to Francis Welsh, and Francis Welsh is uh, is Florence. So he's by marriage, but she's right, she's yeah. the aunt of uh, yeah. Um, Bill Drummond of the KLF is the father-in-law of Clara Soder Soderbur of First Aid Kit. Father-in-law of Clara Soderbur of First Aid Kit. I'm going to say it's true. Son just, Django. It's true. It's no, true. it's not true. He has no son, Django, and I don't think he's even married. But anyway, so the point is, you did extremely well. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know what made me think of all this. I think it was 
remembering that uh, my discovery that the leader of Cooler Shaker was the son of Hayley Mills. You know, those things that you just kind of oh, think, absolutely. Oh, that's extraordinary. Well, not, anyway. uh, not so much the, is it obviously the son of Hayley Mills, but more importantly, he's the grandson of Sir John Mills. Of Sir John Mills. I mean, yeah. come on. That, that is proper royalty. Yeah. Actually, talking of Hayley Mills, I saw a fabulous picture in the paper the other day. Yeah. Somewhere on internet of Hayley Mills when she was a kind of um, young Hollywood starlet, probably about 13 or 14. And she was, she was attending the 18th birthday of another young starlet. Um, and she was dancing with him. And who was he? Michael Douglas. My God. Brilliant picture of them. Too. That's amazing. Yes, they'd be contemporary, wouldn't they? And they're absolute Hollywood royalty, you know. Yeah. John Mills and, and Kirk Douglas. There's just absolutely extraordinary stuff. Yes. Anyway, oh, that's great. That's very good. Listen, we didn't talk about last week, and we should have done, um, Tony T.S. McPhee sadly died. I don't, I'm not going to claim I know a lot about Tony. I don't know a lot about him either, actually, although I used to love the Groundhogs. You did? Yeah, and I don't think I knew at the time that T.S. stood for tough shit. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know. Tony, tough shit. Which <laughs> <laughs> is amazing. But I, I was always really interested, and I was always really interested in that time. I mean, I was only about 13 when all this was going on, but there was that wonderful world of the British blues underground. Yeah. You know, Ainsley Dunbar's Retaliation, Chicken Shack, Savoy Brown, Fleetwood Mac, Graham Bond organisation. I mean, I really, I don't know, I just loved all that stuff. That was really interesting. And it's interesting looking back at it, they're the generation that grew up sitting at the feet of the kind of American blues revivalists, you know, Howlin' yes. Wolf and Johnny Hooker and Big, Big Joe, Tull, Sister Rosetta, Rosetta Tharp, the people who came over to the UK and they saw and that's what made them kind of form bands. But I loved that. It was a very precious world, and there was a very strict rules about who was kind of authentic and who wasn't. Ten years after, were immediately thought of as being spivs and that they'd sold out. You know, as indeed the, the, the Blues Breakers did to some some point because they, they 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 became too successful, and and the Arbutts too by, by being too pop. You know, but no, I thought he was brilliant, and he was. Um, there's something completely raw and unvarnished about the Ground Talks, wasn't there? If you listen to the sound of those records, thank Christ for the bomb. Do you remember that? And yeah. split. And who will save the world? The mighty groundhogs with a fantastic uh, cartoon cover. Oh, indeed. And I, I, I just when I think of those records now, I can get this powerful sensory impression of um, of kind of petulli oil. And great coats, damp great coats, tobacco. It's a wet great coat. Wet great coats, roll up cider, headbands. You know, faint smell of wood smoke. And uh, and I I did see them once, which was at the Wheelie Festival in oh, 1971. Oh, reminders. I know, uh, which was Festival. so fantastic. And it was one of those things when the music went on, there were so many bands booked, there was kind of no curfew. They so literally... The 24 they, hours. They booked every band in Britain. It was originally instigated by... This is immediately post Woodstock, really. When yeah. so, suddenly every burg in the in the world thought, "I know how we can put ourselves on the map. We'll have a rock festival." And I think I'm right in saying that the Wheelie Festival was instigated initially by the Round Table, 
of Wheelie. Absolutely right. By a bunch of a bunch of local burgers and worthies. It was meant to be a load of Tory sort of bowls players who were trying to raise some money for the local charities. And it was a very small thing. They were expecting 5,000 people. I think the the headline group was going to be Mungo Jerry. But they booked everybody and they ended up... But the reason for that was that the the Isle of Wight Festival was cancelled. Do you remember? There was an Isle of Wight Festival. So all these bands were all ready to go. And suddenly they were available and probably available at a discount. And And they just started booking everybody, thinking they they won't come, you know, they ended up having Rod Stewart in the faces and yep. and T Rex. T Rex at, at the time when they were the two hottest groups in the UK. They were, you know. Um, but uh, and so there were so many acts on the on the bill. The only way they could accommodate them is pretty much played twenty four hours, didn't they, Mark? They played twenty four hours. I know, and, and the subtleties of what people were playing were kind of lost. Because the thing about the Grand Dogs, they were very ahead of the game. You know, they were the, all about the CND and ecology and rewilding. And he produced God knows how many thir- was it thirteen solo albums and lots of stuff about anti fox funding. So it's quite political. None of that was uh, it was was evident from from the the sound that emanated, emanated from the, the wheelie stage about three in the morning. I just remember being woken up by this ten minute drum solo. We'd had. Juicy Lucy, I think, and Van de Graaff Generator. We must have had Stone the Crows and Coliseum. We certainly had Principal Edwards Magic Theatre. And then suddenly there they were, this unbelievable crunching racket that uh, dragged me from my sleeping bag. But I loved them. I thought they were really fantastic, actually. And I was sorry to see that, he'd, uh, that he was uh, he's no longer with us. Somebody, there are certain people who really fly a flag for them. Danny Kelly is one. Danny Kelly's always no, tweeting no, about, sure, about sure. the mighty Grand Talks. Sure. Wonderful. They, they, um, they uh, somebody posted a um, uh, something on Twitter the other day. Of, uh, people do this from time to time that they find find some old agents' um, listing of bands back in the day with fees opposite their names. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it says, I don't know, Wishbone Ash, hundred twenty-five pounds, or you know, slightly older, Fairport Convention, two hundred pounds. And I was looking down this list, and people were uh, were piling in, saying who they would who they would um, book if they had their time all over again, and they were the social sec of Keele University or whatever. And the year was nineteen sixty eight. And uh, I think the thing that struck me about this name and, it, and this list, and it had a load of those names that you've already referred to. You know, it kind of flew them back, and you know. And uh, Juicy Lucy, probably family, and you know, yeah, and uh, Toe Fat, formerly Cliff Bennett. You could have got Toe Fat for twenty five quid. <laughs> no, well, possibly. Anyway, long list, and and it really struck me quite forcibly looking at that list. I wish I had it in front of me. Um, that there was such a sea change in popular music in about nineteen sixty eight, when bands were no longer. Physically attractive. Yeah. You you looked at that list and you thought, where's the pretty boy? Yes. <laughs> there isn't one. No. There's nobody. Who did you put in the front of the photo in the fat mattress uh, uh, photo shoot? It's very hard to decide. Christ almighty. Crabby Appleton. How many posters did they sell? <laughs> they all look like wanted pictures, you know, wanted in connection with terrorist offences. Yeah. Thing, you know. 
Pan's just suddenly really shady and disreputable, you know. But nobody remarked upon that, I suppose, because... Well, Groundhogs is a really good example of that. Really? No so, great looker in the Groundhogs. My Lord. Who was the sex boy? The Ken Pastelnik. I don't think so. <laughs> so, yeah. Form an only cue for your signatures. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a new lens through which to, uh, to, to look at popular music. So tell me, Mark... You you keep abreast of everything in the world of the Beatles, in the fast-moving world of the Beatles in 2023. What's this about a new single? Oh, I, I think this is I think this is an absolute. I think it's a fiction. I think it's just McCartney's brilliance at being able to um, to give give news give the news uh, agencies the kind of thing that will get them excited and give him publicity he's selling a book and he's got this book about the yeah. is the magical mystery tour like, oh, what is it? no it's it's, it's basically he took i mean this is classic he took a load of black and white pictures you know backstage kind of thing and, and during beatlemania and and somebody found them not long ago so he thought right i'm gonna publish those as a book and i'm sure they'd be very good you know pictures you'd never seen and of course there's an immense market for pictures of the Beatles that nobody's ever seen before. And so he's out there talking about that. And uh, but he's got this. I mean, I, I remember interviewing him once when he was playing the Queen's birthday party. This must have been about, how much, would it be now? What, about 70th or something. It's one of those Buckingham Palace things. And uh, he just knows how to give you the sound bite that's going to make the headline that's going oh, to get him the attention. Yeah. And he described Her Majesty, as he called her, as a babe. And I thought, that is absolutely brilliant. And as I said it, I kind of exchanged this look with him. And he exchanged, actually, I look at his eyes like, you've got all you need now, haven't you? <laughs> Whatever I say now doesn't really matter because you've got the piece. You might as well just, just turn your tape recorder off, go home and type it up, you know. <laughs> and I feel he did the same with this because he's looking for publicity for the book. And then just let drop that there could be a final Beatles record. No, but the, the other thing he said was that they've managed to do this via AI. Yes, AI. Well, that's, that's, I'm and sure so, there's some truth in that. So because, he's, con- he's combining the, you know, the Beatles who yeah. are endlessly interesting and AI, which is the kind of novel flavor of the month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He put those two, two things together. And of course, as you say, this gets picked up. Uh, on the, you know all the norm, normal uh, news outlets, and there are think pieces about it and so forth. And uh, you know, I just think no real Beatles fan is remotely bothered about this. Not remotely, because okay. I mean, how how unexcited I'm afraid were we when Real Love and Free as a Bird came <laughs> just out? You know, give we were just over. bracing ourselves, you know, and thinking, "Oh God, I hope it's going to be all right." Yeah, it yeah. be too embarrassing. Because the what, idea, this is the one that George Harrison wouldn't play on. Yeah. Song, I think it's called Now and Then. Is it? it's an old John Lennon song, and they've separated his vocal using this AI technique that uh, Peter Jackson used on Get Back. And that's all fine, but I mean, nobody's holding their breath to hear this. They just—I I can't believe so at all. But the thing that interested me is there's that fuss, you know, for a, a few days about a potential new Beatles single. All the, after all that time, is there anybody else in popular music? The potential discovery of an unreleased track by would create anything like that level of interest. If any, if somebody found an Elvis Presley tune from 1959 that had never come out, is anybody bothered? 
Probably not very much. Probably if not any, really. No. If anybody found something, you know, there was an unreleased track from Michael Jackson's Thriller that Quincy Jones has come up with. Anybody bothered? I wouldn't have thought so. The Beach Boys, no. The Rolling Stones. But isn't, that, isn't it the words unreleased that immediately give you the impression that if it had if it had been any good, it would have been released, you know. In a, what, why Why would it have been put on the back burner? Well, I don't know. You, I mean, There are very quite, rare exceptions. Actually, uh, Blind Willie McTell by Bob Dylan is a rare Yeah, I see. But Bob Dylan is an interesting case because he's such a cussed old sod, and it has been for years, that very often he thinks, no, that's too good. I'm not putting that out. Yeah. I've got to hold that back. I hold that I've back. Got to, I've got to put it out 25 years' time or something when I feel like it. Because you know? Blind Willie McTell genu- genuinely thought of as being one of one of his yeah. greatest compositions. You and know, there and were just... quite a few Bob Dylan things that came out years later that were really, really good. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the things that apply, the, the, the rules you know, created for the Beatles don't apply to anybody else to suit yeah. at all, which is uh, which is certainly the way way that it strikes me. Glenda Jackson. I Glenda know. Jackson leaves a bit of a hole in my life, really. Mine too. And uh, Glenda Jackson has been part of my life since I was about 17 or something. Do you remember her as, uh, was it Elizabeth R? Was yeah, it, it was. BBC drama where she played... Elizabeth the first, and uh, with the shaved head, that was a big deal. That was nineteen seventy one, I think. Yeah, was and I was when I was seventeen or something. I remember being at home watching that on the telly. It was absolutely brilliant. The whole family loved it. Was it? Fact, that was a big. That was a big national seventy one. I think was. Was it, it really? As late as yeah, that? I think so. Okay, okay. Because I, the first time she really came into my life was Women in Love, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. The Ken Russell film with her and Jenny Linden and Alan Bates and um, Oliver Reed famously, famously wrestling naked in front, in front of, of a crackling, crackling, crackling log fire. Yeah, yeah. So there's something for all the family and uh, women in love, and that was yeah, it. Was very controversial, uh, yeah, big deal, and she was just such a striking presence, you know. And then. Uh, and we were talking about the other day, in 1971, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, where she played opposite Peter Finch and Murray Head in a John Schlesinger film that featured the first green kiss between two men. That's right. And that's a kind of mainstream British film in 1971. That was... But that was a huge deal, wasn't it, at the time? It was a very, very Massive big deal. deal. Everybody was talking about very it. Very big deal. And the other thing that struck me... About her is that nowadays we, we live in a world where every tin pot actor, actor of any kind, describes themselves as actor and activist. <laughs> yeah. As if what they're mainly doing is saving the planet, but they just managed to find a little but bit of they're funding that by, uh, you know, <laughs> making a few movies. How likely is it that in this day and age any prominent actor would turn their back on fame and prominence and go, no, I'm going to be a member of parliament. I'm going to take the job that nobody the least, wants. One of the least popular and most thankless Absolute, jobs. Most thankless jobs. You know. And, uh, you know, more power to her for, for the fact that she... I, I really, I couldn't agree more. Because she didn't, you know, she did a long time. She did a long time. Comeback wasn't until, I don't know, 25 years later or whatever. No, I, no. I, The other thing that struck me about her was that she's so... 
the polar opposite of the kind of stage school, um, you know, actor star of today. You know, working class when she, you know, Birkenhead, um, you know, well, left school at 15, worked in Boots the Chemist for two years. Two years. I mean, absolutely incredible. A, then got the scholarship to RADA and then... When she was there, she was working as a waitress at yeah. Two Eyes Coffee Bar, working as a clerk, worked in Butlin's holiday camp. She did every single job she possibly could to keep it going. And uh, I, I, I think she's fantastic, actually. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting how, how many people, how much, you know, how popular those Morecambe and Wise clips were. You know, it's, it's a bit like Alec Guinness saying, when I die, you know, the, 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 the newsstands will say kind of Star Wars actor dies, you know. Yeah. It's the same with her, you know. There she was. It's that, uh, it's that, uh, you know, all men are fools and what makes them so is having beauty like what I've got. Love <laughs> is the one that's almost the most memorable that she's ever come up with. And she was fantastic in that, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And what were you talking about? We were talking about memories of films this week because our old chum, Kate Mossman, got in touch. And Kate must be writing a thing about the Wicker Man. Yeah, she is, the, yeah. Um, the the strange British film from the beginning of the seventies, and and Kate occasionally gets in touch when she wants when she wants the old people's view, doesn't she? Yeah. Let's be honest about this. She gets in touch. Say, what was it like? What was it like, Granddad, in the yeah. days before color television? <laughs> Whatever. And uh, and she was asking if we remembered seeing The Wicker Man and what was the response to it. And I actually remembered. Going to see it on a very early date with my girlfriend, now wife, um, probably 1971, actually. And I think we went to see it at the Wood Green Odeon in a midnight screening. Yeah. I said this to Kate, could this be right? She said yes, because I think her parents saw it at the same time at the Muswell Hill Odeon just up the road. Uh, and he was in a, on a double bill with Don't Look Now. <laughs> so the idea, oh, that's hard work, isn't that's it? Hard work. That was a really, really terrifying, <laughs> really upsetting Absolutely. film. Really upsetting. Really upsetting. Oh, I can't even bear so, about it. So upsetting. I can't even, I can't even bring myself to watch it nowadays. No, now no. that, you know. It was upsetting enough at the time when we didn't have children. At the well, time. no, it's to do with having children as well. Is it no, really it's, to do with it's having just children? unimaginably ghastly. Yeah, and whereas now you've got grandchildren, grandchildren, even less likely to watch yeah. it. You know, uh, but anyway, back in those days when we were young, free, and single, and, and could stay up late without falling asleep in front of a, a film or anything, you know, we'd have gone to the Wood Green Odeon to watch not one but two harrowing films because there was just something about midnight screenings that was immensely appealing in those days. And I was trying to remember what it was. You know, you used to sit there and obviously you'd smoke all the way through and uh, and probably snack all the way through as yeah. well. But the other thing that I think was the secret ingredient, the secret ingredient in the appeal of the midnight movie for the young man in the early 70s was that you couldn't take a home afterwards. So if the screening was near your, your horrible <laughs> flat... I mean, I've got a sofa and <laughs> I've got the new Van Morrison record and, you know, and 
we got some cocoa pops somewhere and you'll be fine. <laughs> you know? Oh dear, that's the old what, devil. That's what I think was the the appeal. Do you ever go to the midnight screenings? You well, we went to an all nighter once, but I think I think that was in. Well, I think it was late. 79, if not early 80s, actually. Oh, right. oh, I can't even tell you, actually, Dave. I'm so impressed with a Werner Hart song, All Nighter. Why oh. we do that? <laughs> well, I can remember is you got carrot cake and a cup of coffee at about two o'clock in the morning. And I think we probably slept from about three till six. Quite rightly, what did we miss? Not much. <laughs> but no, I don't remember. I do remember the old late night screening, but that, 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 oh, yeah. It's also a very exciting idea that you were in a cinema. It was an adventure. You went oh, to a place. Absolutely. I know. So further film news, the, the controversy about the, um, the, the, the Criterion uh, collection, which is a kind of very upmarket cineast channel, has uh, streamed a kind of altered version of The French Connection. Well, they've edited it, haven't they? Isn't that right? They've, they've taken out certain scenes. They've taken, they, I don't know about even scenes, whatever, but basically they've um, removed some of the racially insensitive language used by um, um, Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle and yeah. Roy Scheider as whatever the character's called. Um and I just think it's quite interesting this because it makes you think about 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 the future of um, of material in a streaming age. In that, if the copyright holder wants to change the thing that you access, they can do it very easily because it's not like you've got a copy of it. You know, yeah. they're, they're just they're just changing the thing that they that they put out to you, and. Um, and they've got this perennial problem. I find this lots of the time, you know, when I, you call up old movies or whatever on Talking Pitch TV, and it'll say, you know, contain, contains language you may, may find upsetting or whatever. Nobody finds that upsetting, but, you know, may find it somewhat anachronistic. So we're quite used to that. Um, but the the, thing, the other thing that, that strikes me as a play here is that... Um, they can't allow kind of prejudicial language to be spoken by who is the person who is ostensibly the hero of the film. You know what I mean? Which is a kind of editorial decision, that is. Yes, it, it is. Because I can remember going to see French Connection whenever it came out, 71, I think. I went to see it at the time. And I go, this is the, the scene where Gene Hackman goes into this bar and it's overwhelmingly black. Cleontel at the bar, and he gets shakes everybody down and pushes people up against the wall. It's incredibly abusive. It's abusive, and it seems does seem unbelievable. No, but I can yeah, I can yeah. I can remember at the time thinking that's abusive, but yeah. you accepted that they were making the point that that the guy who's the hero of this film he does stuff like that. Yes, that's part of who he is. That's part of the milieu that he came from. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the idea that. All those years later, no, we can't have that any longer. We can't accept in our heads that the person who we're supposed to be rooting for has a really unpleasant side. It just seems like really infantilizing the audience. Completely. To, to say that, you know. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it also struck me, sorry, I can't on a rant about this, that if you start making changes to material, during its life out there with people. You know, and this might apply to music, it might apply to telly, it might apply to films. You're going to have to do it more than once because sensibilities change all the time. Things, things start off acceptable, then become un- unacceptable. So you may reinstate and take out something else. You, yeah. you will, you know. Yeah. It's like somebody's job is to kind of keep tabs on well, haven't they done this with Faulty Towers? And the one episode of Faulty Towers that is... I, I think, think it's the one mentioning the Germans, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it uh, is. I don't um, know. Which is. John Cleese has got out of his pram about. But, um, you know... Um, but it's, you know, if, you, if you watch something like Faulty Towers nowadays, and, you know, there's, it's fantastic. But there is a, occasionally get episodes where you think, well, crikey, they wouldn't say that nowadays. You know, yeah. That particular throwaway line. So what are you going to do? Go, go around changing it all the time. It's like whack-a-mole, you know. It's not going to work, is it? That's right. Something else is going to pop up, isn't it? Something yeah. else is going to pop up. So, you know, watch this space. Uh, you know, we bring you all the latest news on this podcast. What's happening with um, what's happening with French Connection? You know, we, we're very abreast of all that sort of stuff. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. I saw you posted a, a thing the other day about a still from Hannah and her sisters. Mm. Uh, you'd frozen that picture of the record shop and how amazing it is, the amount of time capsules, the amount of information there on the wall behind them. And this was, when was Hannah and her sisters? Late 80s. I no, oh, I think late 80s. I may be wrong. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Maybe. And there in the, in the background is a Duran Duran poster. And you kind of, you can't really kind of, believe that there's something some mention of Duran Duran somehow in a, in a Woody Allen movie it is interesting and there it is and you see they take out a, a record by um by Randy Weston I think don't they randomly who's a jazz player I think but there are just other moments there's that incredible moment in um High Fidelity well obviously that's set in a record store but uh that's so perfectly 
dated by and some and sums up the time by the things they're talking about. There's a selector poster on the wall. We talk about Echo and the Bunny Man, Jesus and the Mar- Jesus and Mary Chain, um, Green Day, The Clash. There's a brilliant scene where Dick, do you remember Dick, the camp guy, is trying to chat up this girl and uh, trying to convert her to listen to Stiff Little Fingers records. And a moment where um, where our hero comes in and says, "Watch me sell five copies of the Beta Band," and he yeah. just puts it on. And very slowly, people come up and say, "What's this? I want a copy." You know. But the other scene that I remember is the one about uh, one in a Clockwork Orange, which was set, I think, in the Chelsea drugstore. It isn't actually a real record shop, is it? I mean, it's just no, it's a kind of, it doesn't feel like a record shop. You know, Alex walks through, picks up magazines, and uh, talks to the two girls that are eating lollipops. You know, and um, there's an amazing clip which has two brilliant bits of kind of rock and roll mythology in it. They talk about seeing a band called The Heaven Seventeen. Yeah, which obviously is where they got their name from. And then he says, uh, he's asking about the equipment, their record playing equipment at home. And he says, uh, what have you got to play your fuzzy warbles on? <laughs> and fuzzy warbles, of course, was the name of uh, Andy Partridge's record company. So what a very rich moment that was in terms of uh, rock folklore. The, but- the, the interesting contrast with <coughs> Hannah and Sisters, and the thing that I just happened to be watching it, and they wandered into it. I thought, oh my God, they're going into Tower. And because I, I hadn't seen this film for years. Yeah. And it's Woody Allen and Diane Weist just, um, they're in Tower. And it's about five minutes long, this scene. They wander around. And then they're in the jazz section. And they're just talking about this, that, and the other. And uh, and you catch bits in the background. You catch, there's a poster of a, of a new album by Bar- Barry Gibb, of all people. Um, and as you say, Duran Duran. But the thing about it, the thing that's really striking about it is they haven't messed around with it at all. They haven't filled it full of visual gags. Or, no, you know, it's just have, absolutely as it is. It, it's absolutely as it was that day in the 80s. It's when not been they dressed, went, is it? Not yeah. been dressed at all. So it's not full of kind of knowing uh, you, you winks to the future at all. You know? Yeah. It's just that's the stuff. And it's Barry Gibb, flop album. Duran Duran, I can't remember which album it was. It wasn't a big one or, or whatever. And, and you just thought that's really what a record shop and a big record shop looked like in the late 1980s. And, and it's an extraordinary thing because you remember how ubiquitous record shops used to be. You used to spend so much of your time record shops. Yeah, you did, yeah. And now they've effectively gone, you know. And and you think, what else is there that would appear as a background in a movie that used to be absolutely workaday and has now just gone? And I couldn't really think of anything, you know. Cafes and pubs and so forth. But no, but they don't have the same... The thing about a record shop, a snapshot of a record shop, you can pretty much date to the week that that picture was hey, taken. Possibly. possibly. Because of the amount of information, you know. It's just, and there's none of that. And a cafe, I mean, they, there aren't that many. It doesn't work, does it, actually? No, well, maybe not. But uh, but it, it is such a reminder of of how they've gone. <laughs> That's the yes. thing, you know. Because, uh, and as I say, it's five minutes of Hannah and the sister, which is a which is a kind of odd film to watch, you know, watch now, really. Um, 
it's still that business if someone somebody takes a cigarette out and lights it, you go, oh my god, I know you couldn't do that. It, you almost feel somebody lights a cigarette in a color film that's shot in the eighties or nineties. You think we're going to be able to smell that, aren't we? I know you think you can smell it. You think they should have asked your permission. Is it all right <laughs> to smoke? You know, John Cusack smokes is one of the greatest smoking performances in High Fidelity. His use of the Zippo lighter, his use of the cigarette as a kind of prop when he's speaking. It's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, so nostalgic. So I can't remember what we were talking about the other week. <clears throat> um, Robert Caro, the guy who wrote, is, wrote and is still writing The Extraordinary Multi-Volume Life of Lyndon Johnson for, for thick. Uh, you know, doorstop uh, volumes already published. The fifth, the fifth is on its way, isn't it? Yeah, been on its way for ten years or more. And uh, and uh, Robert Caro is writing it as in his eighties now. So, you know, people people like me and Sid Griffin, who are big readers of this, be watching nervously for news of his health. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but anyway, the other person who's been engaged in this endeavour for years, and it stunted in the 70s, I think, is a guy called Robert Gottlieb, who's the editor of, of this book and of many, many um, great American books. Uh, you know, he's a person who edited Tony Morrison and uh, and John le Carre, and, you know, he was, he's, if you were absolutely at the top of the tree in, 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 with an American publisher... Robert Gottlieb was the, would be the guy who'd edit your book. You know? But he had a particularly fantastic and close working relationship with Robert Carrot. But he? and that's the point, you know, because they'd start to work on this book years ago, and so if, if the person who was watching most closely on what was going to happen with it next was Robert Gottlieb, uh, and you know they 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 had such a close relationship that Rob Gottlieb's daughter who's a filmmaker made a film about the two of them i think it's called turn every page it came out about six months ago just about these these two <laughs> wonderful old chaps who could argue about semicolons still to the cows lovely came home. oh i'd <laughs> love to hear that <laughs> yeah, yeah. nothing would make me happier yeah. <laughs> be a fly on the wall with Robert Caro and Robert. Is it a Gold. hyphen or is it a long back? <laughs> I think yeah. you'll find. <laughs> yeah. And um two incredibly erudite men who really cared about words, really cared about them. And so this film was made about them. I mean, I haven't seen all of it. I really, I really want to see the film. Anyway, sadly, Robert Gottlieb died this week. You know, so he, 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 I don't know if he ever got to do the last bit of Robert Carroll. No, probably still under construction. Linda Johnson is still selling the construction. I love the idea of the two of them just ringing up and talking about punctuation. <laughs> See, that's a journalistic thing. Journalists just love the idea. There was an incident the other day when uh, I think it was the Daily Mail had a headline. It was something like, uh, uh, I've been driven out by a witch hunt. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was there was the the the, the dash between witch and hunt. This is the Boris Johnson story, obviously, was very very long, and people were interpreting this as being I've been driven out by a witch, says Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> 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 I love all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
So um, we should talk about the just just stop oil controversy. Uh, right, I yes. think this is interesting. I really do. Just stop oil have uh, you know, as everybody knows, they they've so far disrupted um, uh, the snooker, haven't they, and the crucible? Uh, uh, they've disrupted a rugby match. They've 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 chucked uh, you know, their their orange powder all over the Chelsea Flower Show. They've just done the same at Glyndebourne, haven't they? Oh, God, yes. And uh, brought some uh, production to a halt. And uh, the, the, the feeling is now that are they going to disrupt Glastonbury? Well, Mike, how would you disrupt Glastonbury? You know, at Glyndebourne, they, they let off a confetti bomb and they blew an air horn. Well, Glastonbury is full of 300,000 people <laughs> effectively throwing <laughs> confetti bombs around and being held. I don't know what you could do. And also, if you did try and disrupt something at Glastonbury, Glastonbury would have to be seen to be approving of it you know, because it's just stop oil. Well, that, that's kind of the interesting thing, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's the, um, you know, the rock festivals started off as the kind of as the apotheosis of the alternative society and you know yeah we we reject the city we go off into the country and there yeah, we, alternate we take our clothes life. off and we we dance in a dionysian fashion to yeah. a, as richie havens pounds up and down the stage playing acoustic guitars and chanting the single word freedom freedom yes Freedom. You know, so that was that was the rock festival experience, wasn't it? Yeah. And now what is it? It's effectively you take a city and you reconstruct it in a perfectly innocent part of the country. You know what I mean? So that people from that city can can come out to your city and need never miss anything at all. No, and then all the things that they're used to uh, having are there. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a hospital and there's a cinema and there's a series of cafes <laughs> and there's clubs, aren't there? There's bookshops. In, <laughs> fact, in fact, Mark, I'll go further. I'll go further. There is more in the way of human home comforts in Glastonbury now, in 2023, than there was in the whole of London in 1971. Yeah, I'm sure. There is. There's more comfort available. Yeah. Well, there has to be, you know, fuel has to be used to achieve that, surely. It's not people peddling bicycles, is it? You know what I mean? No, it's not. Um, but, um, and so there, there is always that difficulty. Yeah. And no, I think you're right. They'd have to be seen to be approved. Not that we're seeking to encourage anybody to disrupt, disrupt anything at all. But uh, I felt very sorry for Glyndebourne because Glyndebourne apparently have been uh, have been particularly um, you know forward in their in their attempts to reduce their uh, their footprint. You they know, have. I know. I years. thought that was miserable, really. <laughs> and also, opera for crying out loud! You know, we know from our experience with Opera Holland Park. You know, several, there's no amplification in there. You know, if if the baritone is being heard at the back of the back of the auditorium, it's it's pure vocal power, isn't it? You know, it's nothing else aiding it at all, you know. So um, watch this space as ever. You've been listening to the Fountains of Wayne. Oh, God, the Fountains of Wayne. I, 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 there was a thread, I think it was on, our, um, you know, recently about, about old members of, of, of the Word team writing about records that we used to listen to in the office. And... Uh, 
there were various things. If you're all of you in an office and you're playing something on the on the on the on the on the system, you've all got to approve of it because if somebody hates it, do you know what I mean? If, if it doesn't yeah, get the universal ticket, it just doesn't get played. And Founders of was one of those groups that we all agreed on. I think it's because we loved all their reference points. If you listen to their records, it's the Kinks and it's the Beatles and it's you know there's the Small Faces, Big Star, and XTC and the Cars and stuff, isn't it? You know. And I think we all just loved them. And I went back to listening to that record again, and partly also because Adam Schlesinger, uh, the bass player, really very sadly died. He's one of the first well-known people to have died of COVID, actually died yeah. in about April 2020. Yeah. And I found this amazing um, uh, version that they did in, during COVID, actually, as a tribute to him of, of uh, Hackensack, you know. But I loved, I loved those records. And I love the fact they're about uh, suburbia, Fountains yeah. of Wayne was actually the name of a of a, a, a garden supplies shop, wasn't it? Yes, um, in New Jersey. So, in New Jersey, and so this, they're in a sort of lineage of again of the Kinks and Squeeze and the Jam and the Arctic Monkeys and Pulp. I think of, of groups that just write about real life, and uh, the Utopia Parkway record was absolutely incredible. Really about that whole area. Again, it's all around about Queens. And uh, and very sad. There's a lovely song called um, "A Fine Day for a Parade." I love that song. Oh, I it's love a that sad, song. sad old song about a kind of suburban middle class mum who's developed a drink problem, you know, and uh, rhymes suburban with bourbon. Actually, doesn't yes, it? That's it right. Does. You know? <laughs> I was a, and uh, and uh, a great song called "Red Dragon Tattoo." Do you remember that? Yes. Where the guy yeah. who goes to get a, a red dragon tattoo because he thinks it'll impress the girl that he's trying to cop off with, you know. So will you stop pretending that I've never been born now that I look a little more like that guy from Corn? Because <laughs> he's got this tattoo. But no, they're absolutely masterpiece. The, the one I was listening to was, was Welcome Interstate Managers, mm. which is just a, incredible. They had a big hit, actually, with Stacey's Mum, which is also, a lot of their songs are set in that those kind of uh, leafy suburbs. There's one called Fire Island about teenagers when the, when the parents go away and they can have a house party. Yeah. And uh, Stacy's mum is about this guy who thinks he he thinks he's gotten in with. <laughs> he thinks his mate's mum fancies him. Stacy's mum has got it going on. <laughs> That's right. But no, I think the masterpiece is what we talked about was, was Hackensack, which is it's only got two verses in it, and it's the most poignant song. And it's a song about a guy who's um, who's. Oh, how does it go? He says. Uh, he says, "I used to know you when we were young. You were in all my dreams." Uh, we sat together in, in period one, Fridays at 8.15. So now I see your face in the strangest places, in movies and magazines. I saw you talking to Christopher, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken on my TV on screen. On my TV screen. And that's, and, but I will wait for you. If, as long as you want me to, if you're ever back in Hackensack, I'll be here for you. It's so sweet. And you think, well, we know what the girl does. She's obviously in the movies or whatever, you know. What does he do? And then the second verse goes something like... Um, I used to work in a record store and now I work for my dad, scraping the paint off the hardwood floor. The hours are pretty bad. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder where you are, probably in LA. That seems to be the place, place where everybody else ends up these days. And it's just so moving. This guy is just kind of, you know, he started off in the record store and that didn't quite work out. And he still has this kind of, holds this guttering candle for this girl that he remembers from his first school. It, it's, it's just so... They're such good storytellers, those guys. But There's also, two verses. But also, there are the, most Founders and Wayne stuff, and it's one of the, this is one of the elements that makes it endure, 
it's slightly sad, isn't it? It is sad. There's the 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 under. It's crestfallen. It's yes. mournful. It's yes. a little bit pessimistic. Things didn't work. Things don't work out. No, there's no song that actually says, "Wow, this is." Yes. What's that other song? Is it a bright future? Bright future is the idea that a lot of them remind me of the character that Dustin Hoffman plays in The Graduate. Actually, this guy, this is yeah, yeah. highly educated boy, he's got the whole world at his feet, and then he just can't quite work out what to do, and you can feel that everything's falling apart. You know. And that's really what that we're not selling them very well for anyone who hasn't heard them, but they oh, are brilliant. The founders away, they're fantastic. And you and you wonder why they're not bigger. And I suppose there's no there's no big sense of character. But no Mark, 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 no Mark as we've said, as we've said, you might say that it's a shame they're not bigger. They might be one day. They might be one day. We know how these things work yeah. nowadays, you know. The people will still be listening to founders of Wayne and finding them in 10, 20 years' time. Yeah. That's the way it happens with recorded music nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, it you is. Know, you, so, you, you, know, you shouldn't yet. There's even less reason to chase it than there was in the past. And which brings me to, which brings me to. Oh, says, look at that. He says, for the segue. <laughs> yeah. Grasping his lapels. Yeah. Um, the Paul Simon album. Oh, yeah. You and I talked about Seven Psalms that came out know, a month ago or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I was reminded of it again. <laughs> reminded of it. It's only been out a month. <laughs> I was something Elvis Costello was talking to Paul Simon this week, and he said he thought it was one of Paul Simon's greatest records, which is fair enough. Um, and you know, Paul Simon's made some pretty great records. It really <laughs> And um, and I just thought, how do you come to a conclusion like that in this day and age? Because you only know. Now I'm not arguing with Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello is fantastic, and he's a fantastic commentator on music, writer about music. He's brilliant, um, and I don't disagree with him at all. I'm just interested in this whole business about. Seven Psalms comes out. Oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. Hasn't really got normal songs on it. It plays like one long meditation on mortality, doesn't it, really? Yeah, it does. It yeah. sounds slightly unfinished, which is quite attractive about it, you know. And 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 so I've listened to it, you know, I've probably listened to it about ten times one way or another, you know. Put it on when I'm walking in the park or whatever. And it hasn't completely landed with me yet. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will at some point. Um, but it might be a year hence or two years hence, you know, because you listen to popular music, I find, I don't know, it's just me. Unless you've got, we used to have the job of writing reviews of it, which is best way to kill your enjoyment of popular music. You know, yeah. you've got to come to a conclusion about this in 800 words in two days' time or whatever. Um, but I always find with music is it kind of steals up on me when I'm not concentrating on it. You know, it's I listen to something for quite intensively and then I don't listen to it for ages and then I catch a bit of it and I go, oh, yes. You know what I mean? And it's building on the back of, of the early listenings, 
Does that is that making any sense? It makes complete no, sense. And, and very uh, slowly it comes into it's focus. Slowly. It's a I, slow thing. It's a bit exactly the same process you get with books sometimes. That you can be reading a book and it's just struggling a bit. And then suddenly you realise that some internal momentum has taken over and you're being carried through. And it's not it's not a it's not an effort anymore that you're really looking forward to getting to the next chapter. And you find yeah. that record, it takes a long time. I and mean, the you know, trap mask replica. I mean, there's really obvious things that just took a while. I remember listening to early Steely Dan records and finding them quite hard work, and then suddenly it all made sense, you know. So, Trout Mouse Replica, I think a Ryan Zane came up 54 years ago today. Good God. <laughs> I read that somewhere on the internet, so it must be true. Um, you know, no, I'm just interested in that, that whole business about um, how quickly you come to a conclusion about a record. Because you used to have to, and I don't think you have to anymore, you know, because, you know, music... You don't go chasing music. Music chases you. Music finds you. I think you know, and uh, you know it might take me. It might take me another six months with Seven Psalms, but there's enough there in it to make me want to keep putting it on. And I suppose that's that's. So you're saying how how can Elvis Costello tell at this stage? How do you it's know better how, than Graceland? Or well, what? he didn't say that. Yeah, no, you know, no. To be fair, you know. But, um, you know, if I met Paul Simon in a lift and he asked me what I thought of his new record, I would honestly say it's really interesting. And it yeah. is, which yeah. almost sounds like damning my faint praise. Yeah, but it is. It's, it is. The Radio 2 word, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. It's like, it's like what people, football commentators say, always talk about, it's a really interesting game. You think, oh, it's boring. It's boring. It? Intriguing is classic. Intriguing means I know I'm supposed to like it, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> Intriguing, or it's it's fashionable, and therefore I can't be seen to be left out here, but makes no sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So are you amongst the people who are watching increasingly, watching television with the subtitles on? Do you do well, we are, yeah. Well, we certainly watched all of The Wire with the subtitles on because oh, it was God. very, very hard to... It's just well, been, it's also inaudible, but it's also in... You just, yeah. I said it just been the twentieth anniversary of the wire. Or something. Yes, it has. Yeah, God, that's incredible. I know, it's astonishing. Uh, no, I definitely watched the whole of the wire. Was but I think I think watching with subtitles on changes your it changes the, your approach to completely actually because you get to the point where you have to watch the words because if you don't watch the words, you feel you're going to miss something. You miss. Therefore, it makes you concentrate actually. Yeah, it makes yeah. you concentrate. You may miss a bit of background information because you're reading the subtitle, but uh, I think it's a, a, whole, a, a wholly different procedure, and it's good. Well, I do something worse than that, Mark. I watch it with subtitles on, with headphones on. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm that's I'm the a, most immersive experience imaginable. Well, that's kind of what you have. Are to you do. even aware there's an outside world? Not really. That's what you have to do with that kind of telly. Yeah, you watch it as closely as you used to listen to records years ago, and um, you know, and the way the sound is mixed, and you know, it's an audio experience as much as as much as a record used to be. It strikes me, um, and that that applies to to lots of telly made nowadays. Um, so what that means is, you know, I watch things in one room and my wife watches them in another. <laughs> you know, and we you occasionally text each other. 
very, very often watching completely different things, you know, because it's um, that's the way telly is, isn't it? And yeah. There's just so much of it, you know. And, and it's very difficult to recommend things to people nowadays because what are you doing recommending that they should spend eight hours watching something? You know, it's not like dropping in for half an hour of faulty towers or whatever it was, is it? It's but then the counter-argument to that is that everybody has the appetite now for the next eight-hour thing they're going to watch because they watched a few eight-hour things and got a lot of pleasure out of it. But I know what you mean. It's a responsibility, isn't it? I suppose thinking, so. How long should I keep banging away at Colin from accounts before I think it's worth pursuing the entire thing? The answer to that, by the way, is keep going. <laughs> keep going. It's fantastic. Keep going. But I watched recently, I watched the um, the Watergate Plumbers, I think that's what it's called, uh, and it's the story of G. Gordon Liddy and whatever the other guy was called, Howard Hunt, who were the two clowns that uh, were the contacts between the White House and the guys who who, who bust into the Watergate. And uh, and it's Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux, and it's, you know, proper production, proper writers, proper budget, and it, I think it's five episodes. And I watched the first one. I thought, this is, this is kind of all right. All right. I'll watch the next one. So I'm really interested in that whole thing. And I ended up watching five episodes at the end of which I went, that was rubbish. It, that- was, it was just poor. It just was not very well done. Five at hours all. of your life, you're never going to get five back hours. Again. Yeah. Are you done? Well, I thought, I, yeah, I felt like. A, I felt like an explorer who'd gone up a mountain that wasn't worth going up, and his duty was to go back down the bottom of the mountain and stand there with a sign saying, "Don't go up here." It's Don't rubbish. go up here. The view isn't isn't worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's raining. So uh, yeah, at least I've been there, and I can say um, we've talked enough, haven't we, Mark? I think it's time to go off and have some breakfast. Is that right? It is. My God, yes. It's half past eight on a Saturday. Let's do it. The the rest of the day is your own, Mark. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by The Word. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.